I was looking to how could I perhaps marry what I was becoming more, you know, I, I was a mother at this time. I had been married and divorced and ready to really take that, you know, maturity and try to be bold and brave and break out of what I had always known um, and do something different. And that was when I really was looking into how can I get into health, wellness, more lifestyle, both business to business and business to consumer marketing, because to me, I had much more personal passion in that field. But I was also, I didn't, that's not where my connections were. That wasn't where my network was. And so that was a bit of a brave, bold and scary time, but I decided to pursue it. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a scrappy young girl from Orange County with dreams of being the next Connie Chung found her way west and became a global chief marketing officer for a leading fitness technology company. Hey, 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 now here's my regular ask. If you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes, assuming you like the show. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. All right, with that out of the way, on today's episode, we are talking to Cambria Jacobs, the Global Chief Marketing Officer of eGym. This episode is a special one for me, as I first met Cambria 20 years ago while we were working at a technology startup in Boulder, Colorado called Raindance, the hot tech of the time, audio and web conferencing. Go figure. Anyone listening using that technology today? Well, when I met Cambria, this was new tech. It was hot. And I can tell you, it didn't always work. But the very first moment I met Cambria, I knew she had it. I didn't know what it was then, and I really didn't even know what professional marketers in a company did back then. But I knew she was smart, and she was pivotal in helping to shape the overall company strategy. And Cambria has had a remarkable career in marketing, and she's nowhere close to winding it down. But today, she is the Global Chief Marketing Officer of eGym, which is a global fitness technology leader that provides fitness and health facilities with intelligent workout solutions built on connected gym equipment and software. eGym empowers gym operators to deliver a comprehensive experience through its smart gym equipment and digital solutions to support their members' fitness journey and provide data-based guidance to help them stay motivated and achieve their goal of a healthier life with improved physical and mental wellness. Cambria will give us some examples of what that is specifically in this episode so you can get a sense of what eGym does. Together with her team, they've reinvented the eGym brand to represent what the fitness technology company has evolved into, a global player at the intersection of exercise and health. Cambria is so smart and I could talk to her for hours. After the interview, we talked about doing a follow-up interview diving deep on marketing and branding-specific topics, so keep a lookout for that one. But in the meantime, put on your listening ears, because Cambria Jacobs is sharing 20 years of marketing experience. And this is her story. Cambria, thanks thanks for joining us. We have a long history together, which I hope to discuss in this episode. Uh, but before we get to that, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, your position and the company you work with and what you guys do? What is eGym? Awesome. Thanks, Mark. So my name is Cambria Jacobs. I'm the Global Chief Marketing Officer at eGym. eGym actually was founded right around 10 years ago. And our mission was to make the gym work for everyone, which I think right now in terms of uh, the global pandemic is something that we all could feel safe and ready to, to work out in a place that actually delivers that. But we really have grown from a, from a small team into a, a multinational company. Um, we've launched several generations of, of smart strength equipment lines 
that really have expanded over time. And when you look at eGym, we're a global fitness technology leader. Uh, we provide fitness and health facilities with really smart and intelligent workout systems across the globe. It's designed really not about just showing up to the gym and getting your workout in, but how we can actually deliver results, measurable results to the person who is working out, as well as to the gym owner who's making an investment in both their hardware, their software, and their total system. So give me an example, like, like where might I actually come into contact with, with your technology? Absolutely. So in North America in particular, um, the YMCAs um, were actually some of our, our, early, um, our early customers. And it's perfect, especially when you look at the mission of making the gym work for everyone and then aligning that with the YMCA mission where it truly is that, that perfect mix of, of America where everyone is, is welcome um, the alignment was pretty clear. And what was really great to see with the YMCAs is that they were looking for a solution that if you can imagine when you go into a gym, maybe you're just coming back after having your second child, um, maybe you're older and you're recovering from a stroke. And at the YMCAs, that's a place that you feel pretty safe. But when you walk over to do actual strength training, looking at that whole wall and trying to remember how do I adjust that seat? How much weight can I really lift? Where did I put that pin? A lot of times people like that, which we, we refer to as the health seekers. So really the 80% of, of us here in North America, that's super intimidating. And so the YMCAs in particular have been a great place where they looked at that and saw our equipment where you actually get on a machine, you take your RFID and, and it knows who you are. Um, and it'll actually do a strength test for you. And, and it's all like playing Pac-Man, essentially. It's all gamified. And so I'm chasing some you know, dots on a screen while I'm pushing what I can and pulling what I can. And then it remembers it. It remembers where my seat was, was positioned. It remembers how, how hard I was able to push. And then every six weeks, it will let, allow me to do another strength test. So essentially, when I come back, all I have to do is, again swipe my RFID. It knows exactly where I was last time. I, I sit on and I, and I get going. Um, and I can go ahead and get my strength training workout accomplished in 30 minutes or less. And I instantly have all of my data about how effective I was, how much better I was perhaps than last time, how I'm progressing. Um, I can see all of that data real time on all of my digital devices. If, you know, if I've downloaded the app, all of it is integrated. So that part is just really exciting for where you can see that, at least in North America, and that's in the YMCA or the nonprofit sectors. But additionally, we also are in Gold's Gym in Southern California. Um, we also are have boutique concepts. So those concepts that are a little bit different um, in, uh, in Florida. Um, so we've got folks in all different regions, but the YMCA would be the most prevalent here in North America. And, and that's incredible. I feel like you just described me. I didn't realize I was a health seeker, but like one of my biggest, one of my biggest like issues with going to the gym or even like, like when you're like in a cycling class or whatever is truly like, where, did, where was I set last time? Like, how do I set this up? Like, I always feel like, and then I'm intimidated because I feel like a idiot in the gym. Like, I don't know how to do anything. And, and I don't want to be, you know, seen as that person that doesn't know how to work the machine that I'm on. And so I just, I feel like that's so amazing in a, in, in a service and a technology and a solution that, uh, that everyone truly needs. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that deployed a little bit uh, more widely uh, into some of the other places. I'm a, I'm a lifetime fitness person. So if you can make that happen, that'd be great. Absolutely. We are, we're all there. Lifetime fitness, that would be a, just such an amazing opportunity to expand that net to help, like we said, health seekers like us, that again, we're not alone. Uh, 80% of us here in North America would fall into that bucket. And we're not going after the experts because we have the Pelotons and some of that really expert equipment that is, is dialed in and they know how to use it. So they don't need necessarily as much guidance. So let's not try to, to attack that market where they're feeling like their needs are already being met. How about the rest of us that are trying to just get healthier and, and be fit for the life we want to live? And so global CMO sounds really, really awesome. And, and as, as in my world, that's about as, as high as you go in the marketing realm. So you've, you've done quite well. But like, I have to ask, you know, when you were eight years old, was Cambria, little Cambria, was she dreaming of becoming a marketer? Like, what was your childhood like? And, and, and would you want to be when you were little? 
Huh. What a what a fun question. I would say when I was little, I so growing up in the, you know, born in the early 70s. And so being a small child in the late 70s and 80s, uh, I would say Connie Chung and Jane Polly seem to be a couple of my childhood heroes, as strange as that sounds. So I actually always wanted to be on the Today Show or Good Morning America as a morning newscaster. And I wanted to be that since I was like six or seven years old. So no, I, I mean, I guess in, in a way, communication was always something that I was drawn to. I loved complex stories that that seemed way too complicated for the everyday person to really understand. And then to see them show up, package it in a way that was digestible for, I guess, the rest of us, um, always just seemed like something that was was fun and cool and uh, really helpful and meaningful, at least for our family. Um, and it was also a time that I remember of just being together in the early mornings before the rest of the day ensued. That's weird. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of that era too. And, you know, all my stories of bonding are over movies and things like that. I think this is part of the generation, but you were growing up, I believe in Southern California. Is that right? Yes. I was uh, born and raised in Newport beach, California before I headed to college, um, at the university of Colorado Boulder. Um, so, and where I have remained ever since. Yeah. And what were, what were your interests as, as you got a little older, maybe not even quite to college, but as you were uh, in California, I mean, was it pretty typical? Was it this like kind of, you know, warm, sunsetty kind of existence where you're hanging out at the beach and it's a little bit like saved by the bell or like what, 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 what was it like then? Yeah, I would say that um, Orange County at that time, Newport Beach in particular, was definitely I wouldn't call it a sleepy beach town because I think it had progressed from that by the time, you know, the 80s and 90s hit. But but certainly much, much uh, rougher around the edges than perhaps it is now where um, it certainly seems to be much um, more perfectly polished, I would say. And I feel really lucky. I can't speak for the the other classes that, that grew up in that time, but we had a really strong group of uh, parents. Um, and I went to Corona Del Mar High School. We had great teachers and leaders and we were very close. Um, my class was just a few hundred people. And so, yes, um, being down on the beach, um, Tower 5 at Big Corona was the hangout. And um, we had fun um, and didn't ever take it too far uh, for the most part. Again, depends on the group you were in. But it was a, it was a good, it was, it was definitely not 90210. Um, and we felt supported, connected. It was about Friday night lights, just like all cities and towns. Um, but yeah, we had the the opportunity and the amazing luxury of then ending that day or starting that day at the beach, um, driving down the street to see a sunset, Catalina in the background. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say it was pretty similar to a lot of towns, a lot of growing up, just, um, you know, with also a lot more privilege and opportunity. So felt felt very, very fortunate. And what were your interests at that time, both uh, academically and, and non-academic? You know, I think for me, I mean, honestly, I was definitely that kid that, you know, socializing was, was certainly a, a priority of mine. I didn't necessarily put a lot of thought into what was going to be next, but I always knew that obviously I would go to college. I wanted to go out of state. I wanted to really push beyond Orange County and, and see what was was out there. And my parents really pushed me to, to not take the University of Southern California path and to, to get out and meet people that grew up in other places. Um, and so for me, I really appreciated and loved and um, felt so lucky to grow up where I did. And it still remains one of my my top places to, to go home, as I still call it. But um, what I always knew is that I did want to travel. I did want to expand. And I wanted to do something different, bigger, and better. But what that looked like, especially in high school, I had absolutely no idea. Well, and I think that that's typical, right? <laughs> like, I think most of us don't don't necessarily know what we want to do after. And I think that's a big part of of being that age and figuring it out and exploring. But so you decide to go to... University of Colorado at Boulder. And like, why there? Like of all the places, uh, why uh, why be a buff? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I think, you know, I would love to say that I, I searched it out. I did all the research. I really had grown in terms of my vision of knowing what was next for me and therefore very methodically made that decision. But truth be told, it definitely was, you know, in that time, the era of uh, Southern California's, uh, Southern Californians invading 
Boulder, Colorado. And I came out with a handful of kids from uh, Corona del Mar. Uh, my older brother also uh, went to University of Colorado, um, was a Sigma Chi and was uh, a gorgeous place. So that certainly had a, a heavy weighting on that decision. And then, of course, once I, I started the application process and interviewing, I really became, um, I started to create my own vision of why Boulder, Colorado. And, and that came from kids that I met that were from back east and from the Midwest. Um, it came from seeing these mountains that were so crystal clear and so um, detailed that they almost didn't even seem real to me. And then having the opportunity to start working in Boulder, Colorado through college, waitressing um, at uh, one of the, the most famous dive restaurants in town, Juanita's, um, really expanded my colorful um, social network um, that really started to feed into what I was looking for, which was just a little bit more of not the same, of more experiences, more backgrounds that I didn't have, even though Boulder, Colorado, I would not say is, is still the... Uh, the mecca of uh, diversity. Yeah, not not quite. It wasn't then, no. and, and it's not now. But uh, we're working on it. So, uh, when you were at at college, like, what were your interests besides the social aspect? It sounds like you had that nailed. But were you studying marketing? Did you start to map out a vision for your 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 life and your career after uh, college? As I had a couple of really great professors um, at the University of Colorado. And the classes I was still taking were, were still pretty broad. And yes, marketing, you know, as I as I entered and communication always still remained as not only something that I was drawn to, but something that had been, you know, really communicated back to me that it seemed to come naturally to me and that perhaps that's something that you should lean into more. So I started to really double down in that area. And I did so in a way that I started looking really about better understanding rhetoric um, the power of it. And, and then as I was able to secure an internship with a, a new and emerging um, tech startup here in Boulder, right around my junior year, I realized that much of what I had been taking for granted that, you know, in terms of communication, um, in terms of how people are, are marketing and the different strategies, something that seemed a lot like common sense to me was actually something that this company in particular, and then I would learn many, if not all companies, it's one of their biggest challenges is how do we communicate as a, as a company with each other? And how do we communicate with our customers, our shareholders, all of those key stakeholders? And, and while, yes, we all communicate, but very few and few of us do it well. And so that really became my, my path of being so intrigued by the, the words and the styles and the channels that different leaders around the world had selected throughout periods of time. And then the impact that has had on so many milestones, again, across our world. And that really began to, to draw me in. And then having um, my first internship in the marketing team really gave me a better understanding of how that then could be applied and used to actually tie it back into measurable results beyond just what, what felt like it helped alleviate some challenges or friction actually resulted in company company and customer benefits. And, and that was a connection that had I not had that internship, I don't know if I would have been able to make that um, that connection at that time. Yeah, and it's a, such a, a powerful connection. I mean, I, it's one I still struggle with today. I mean, like I get caught up in the things that that make me and the, the client feel good and, and sometimes forget about those measurable results and actually having the business outcome. And I think a lot of People in this space struggle with that at times, especially when you slant a little bit more towards the creative. But when you were, um, you know, you mentioned this this idea that you were that it was reflected back upon you that you know you had this gift for communication. Do you remember any th moment in particular, or any professor, or anyone that really connected with you on that, and 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 what they told you? You know, I look back, actually, it would be even earlier than that. I look back at a project that we had to do uh, in high school. And th that sort of that triggered me into really thinking more about it. And it was at a time in Southern California. Um, Irvine Company is, is one of the, the largest development firms it was at the time. Donald Bren, um, which is funny that, you know, a child of 14 or 15, 15, 
would remember um, a developer and a, a company. However, that was one of the main industries, I would say, in, in Orange County. And looking at growth and the growth plans um, in Southern California at that time and our beaches and the open space. Um, and we had a project um, to be able to say, you know, if you could partner with anyone, um, be able to do a presentation, who would it be and what would it look like? And I took the opportunity to really do a, a slow growth development plan that would still appeal to, to one of the biggest developers in Southern California and present it in a way that would be compelling for him to invest, even though the short-term revenue would be less than desirable. And as I gave that presentation to a mixed panel, the amount of engagement and accolades, um, so definitely a celebration of, of a talent, and then actually some creative thinking that came out of that from a, you know some well-esteemed professionals, um, was really sort of that that juice that I needed to be able to continue pursuing that. And then at fast forward, you know, maybe six years later in the internship presentation, where I was really pushed that you don't need to be so afraid to make sure you're always choosing the wrong words, sometimes getting out of your own way and just, you know, really speaking from the gut um, and trusting what you've learned. Sometimes that'll take you way farther. And that opportunity that I finally did that and was less prescriptive was uh, the opportunity that I really got the best grade in that class and that confidence boost to, to stop really always questioning everything you're going to do and start trusting your gut as you're building up your experience continued to be something that, that I followed um, into my, my early career. And is that how you continue to make decisions today? Are you typically a gut-based decision maker? You know, I would say in the in the early days, um, you know, having not a lot of experience, less, less so. And then I'm smart enough to know also that as data um, becomes much more prevalent, much more aware, um, really looking at trends, things of that nature. But I think that comes with with just experience and and visibility into those data, um, into that those data sets. So less about less about gut unless it's a decision breaker, um, more about trusting the experts that are around you, doing a lot of listening, looking at trends. Um, I think that is, is definitely much more a part of my decision making now. Um, and then gut when when it's not super clear, the the line is is a little bit blurred. You go back onto what do you know and uh, and also surrounding yourself with fantastic people um, that ideally have more expertise in areas that you do not. Yeah. And I, I know that you have a, a daughter who is uh, finishing high school and getting into college. And so it's such a kind of an exciting time and, and a parallel. And I'm thinking about you and in your college career. And so when she or not when she when you left college, when you left Boulder, did you know what you were going to do? Did you have a job lined up? Were you like, hey, I, all right, I'm, I'm ready to go? Or what, what did that look like for you? So I, I always look back on that time and just feel so incredibly fortunate. I had the opportunity to connect with four amazing um, ex-Air Force men who had created the startup Link VTC, which at the time, uh, which is in the mid-90s, uh, was a, a very innovative uh, video conferencing company um, and for, really uh, focused on Fortune 500. So... Pfizer, Wells Fargo um, of, of the world were really our, our biggest accounts. And everyone at the company was definitely 30 or younger and was that, that early tech startup vibe in Boulder. And I was lucky enough through University of Colorado to land a marketing internship um, within that company. And as I graduated, um, I was able to interview and was offered a marketing assistant role at that company. So I was able to, to do the, the six-week American backpack through Europe trip and then come back to a job working with um, really some of the best teammates um, I've ever had and, and continue actually being some of my very dear friends and, and leaders that inspired me and continue to be some of the best leaders I've, I've ever worked with. Yeah, it's like the American college dream, you know, like you go to college, you get a job. You know, <laughs> it's, exactly. not, it's, not, it's not so common anymore. I know, uh, I know. It, 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 was, uh, it was one of those things that, but I knew at the time, I definitely did not take that for granted. I knew at the time how very fortunate I was, um, the way things played out. Yeah, and so take us back a little bit, because, you know, this 
interviews being recorded on Zoom. You and I, we we came to our computers. Uh, we had very little issue. We just hit one button. Uh, we're talking to each other, seeing each other. Our lips are synced. It was just, it's just such an easy experience today, and especially in the middle of this pandemic. I mean, people are living on video, and and it just all seems to work. But what was it like back then? Like like you know, why was it just for Fortune five hundred companies? Oh my gosh. Well, back then. I feel like a very old person right now. Back then, kids, it was try to get an ISDN line installed to your your office, let alone your home. So you had enough bandwidth to actually be able to have a, you know, have video and audio. And then they also had these incredibly complex and expensive systems that actually would have enough resolution to be able to actually capture a video that was worth anything, um, let alone the quality of, of these you know, Fortune 500 companies. And then, of course, it would not be as simple as just clicking a button you know, between the early network challenges, the you know, hardware challenges, software challenges, et cetera. I mean, it was, it was an entirely different world back then. And like anything, we can think of the cell phones back in the 80s where people had to carry around a giant suitcase. I would say it's probably similar to that experience and, and which now, of course, it's it's a device that everyone has, everyone uses, much like how this pandemic has now you know, allowed us to have uh, Zoom calls and hangouts with our grandparents. So um, really similar technology path of part of the early adopter phase where it was, you know, you need to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in that equipment and then thousands and thousands every month um, for the support. And then businesses like LinkVTC, um, Comfortex of the world that were outside of you know British Telecom um, that were also popping up. So the very early telecom startups um, that were coming up in the in the 90s. Yeah. And why was it um, X Air Force? Like what what was that that all about? The the leaders. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, great question. I, I don't know the the actual drive as to why they they landed in technology, um, but I do know that these were were four different gentlemen that all had really different areas of expertise. But what they shared was um, exceptional leadership, very charismatic, incredibly intelligent, and technology and communication was just a natural fit for them. And it actually, they started in, in California before they decided to move to, to Colorado. And together, um, they had the ability to do a lot of, you know, building databases um, themselves with uh, Paul Barbarian, an, an early um, now CEO of Spiro, right, um, of the Jim Legeals of the world um, who have taken, you know, companies public since of you know being able to raise funds and help a, an early company be really financially responsible, um, a Joel Daly who could train the most technical skills to fresh college graduates um, while also inspiring them to to really show up and give more than they ever thought possible, and then followed by Art Zaley who was the epitome of a sales and marketing leader that that made his team feel that they could accomplish the world. Um, and rewarded them every step of the way, and, and almost like, you know, your your favorite father, where you wanted to make sure that that he was as proud of you as the customer was. So together, they just had a really special mix of of talent, leadership, and incredible intelligence. Yeah, and for those listening, if you go ahead and Google those names, you will see where they've all gone, and they've gone on to amazing, great things. It's a bit like having the all star team or the Beatles at the beginning of your career and then, you know, where they went after. So it's, it's pretty cool that uh, you were able to, to start your career and really get your foundational worldview and business and skills from those, from those leaders. I mean, I know, and you know, the things that are really still with me today are from my, my first jobs and from what I've learned from my, my, my first uh, mentors and bosses. And so it, it's interesting how it, those, you know, sometimes people say your first job doesn't matter in a lot of ways. It doesn't except for the fact <laughs> that you're going to, you're really impressionable and you're really learning and it really sets, you know, how you're going yeah. to view and see the world uh, going forward. So, so it's how fortunate childhood, right? I mean, it's, you know, does it really matter what you chose to, you know, you, you were choosing to take in high school, the friends you made, the sports you played. No, it doesn't matter how you perform in that, but it's all of the lessons along the way that you showed up, that you worked hard, 
the friends that you meet, the families that you're having dinner with at the dinner table, how you're talking about who you are and what you're seeing in the world is so impressionable. And that same thing happens, I think, as you enter into college and whatever that experience is, regardless of how you perform or what your major is. And that same in that first job about how you choose to show up and then what you're observing around you and, and where you decide to take that, um, whether you're starting as you know, the, you know, and, you know, the very entry level or you're getting a mid-level position. It's what do you do from that point um, that I think is, is the opportunity that you can make of yourself and, and how you want to be perceived by those that can really take you to whatever is next. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com, and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. So you're at Link, uh, VTC, and, and what happens with that company and where do you go next? So in my, you know, my fond memories, I felt like I was there for, you know, five years when in, in fact it was, it was more like a couple of years. Um, but I think we all know in startup time that that felt and, and really the experience was probably five plus. And, you know, I, I was able in that, that young marketing assistant position to, you know, receive a, a promotion, um, start to experience um, an acquisition, acquiring companies, able to experience what a rebrand looked like. And not just experience it, but be part of the team that led it um, with, with leaders that were much more experienced um, than I was at that time. And um, being young and ambitious, you know, thinking I, I knew more than I absolutely did at that time, was, was getting antsy for what was next. And those founders, you know, you, when you're part of a startup like that, it definitely feels like family. And they too, through these acquisitions and, you know, we're starting to move on to what, what was next for them. And I remember at that time as, you know, early on when I heard that, I couldn't even imagine why would they break up the band? It was like your parents saying, you know, they were leaving. And it was, it was really, I remember it being really hard for the company. I mean, there definitely were tears involved. And when I look back on that to create a culture at work that people felt that personally aligned and involved and wanted to, to deliver so much excellence that they were personally just, you know, devastated when there was that time to move forward um, was was pretty impressive. And then also it let me really separate and look back and, and understand that there is a life cycle and a value. And now it's time to take what you've learned and try to replicate the, the best of the best into whatever was next. And um, luckily one of those partners, actually two of those partners split off, started a new company um, along the same lines of technology and communication but it was right around video streaming before video streaming was a thing. And uh, like broadcast.com and vStream at the time and had invited me to take the marketing methodology, philosophies, practices that we had built at LinkVTC and apply them to their new startup. And, uh, and so that, that path started and they actually gave me the opportunity to start building my own team, even though I was but a few years out of school. And, uh, and that was what was next. Yeah. And what'd you think about that? Were you ready to do that? I mean, I know in my career, sometimes I've, you know, I, I've set my sights on a particular role, uh, well above myself. And I'm like, I want that role. And I can cite examples where getting that role was really this great moment of growth. I've, I've, I can also cite a time where I was like, you know what, I probably should have went the more, you know, the, 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 the slower path and worked my way into that role. Uh, cause I wasn't ready or I didn't learn what I needed to learn. So, uh, how were you at that role when, when, when you took the reins of, of marketing for the first time and, and, and had to lead your own team? Yeah. So I think, I think a couple of things happened. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. 
I will say that because the the partners that I was working for on that side of the house uh, came from finance and tech, I think they the way they saw marketing was um, we need events and we need a trade show booth. And I know Cambria was really good at doing that in the early days at Link. So let's have her do that. And so I think that they were looking at marketing at that time as you know we had a really limited budget. We were a scrappy startup um, and she's scrappy. And so I think based on that level of expectations, it was it was a good move for me. And then what what unfolded was together we were able to really share what is marketing, how can it be bigger. I was allowed to surround myself with other professionals that had much more experience than I did, as well as other partners and agencies that then allowed me to really learn on the job and be able to then hire a good team around that. So I would say it evolved slowly um, as funds became available, as expertise became available. And then from there, I mean, it wound up being, you know, a a 15-year job through acquisitions, going public, multiple rebrands. And so, you know, working at a job 14, 15 years is... It's sort of unheard of these days, but truly it was it was like working for six different companies and product evolution and all of that. So I think the amount of on-the-job training in a startup, but having the opportunity to surround yourself by experts and um, amazing agencies and organizations allows you to take maybe a, a less traditional path. Um, but um, wow, you, you can't learn any more than, than that. Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes that at either your employer or your own uh, detriment because uh, you're not going to get it right out of the gate and there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, and so what was going on with streaming at that time? Did that take off? Was that an incredibly successful business? Uh, well, I would say if you uh, if you asked our partners in the company, I think it absolutely was really successful business. I think there were some some missed opportunities on the the B2B space and uh, you know, I think we all know the, you know, the broadcast.com story of you know, one brand will win. And I would say uh, they came out ahead and, and sort of, we were not the leader, but we, we sure put up a good fight. And a lot of the, again, early adopter technology and services that we created, we were then able to pivot into more of a continued online collaboration that was, again, less heavy lifting, like was back in the video conferencing days with, you know, timely processes and heavy infrastructure and all of that. And I think we we pivoted quickly at a time to allow us to really still target, you know, B2B marketplaces with virtual communication tools, but do it in a much lighter weight fashion when web conferencing like the WebExes of the world were all starting to come into play. And we were, again, ahead of the curve on that front also. Yeah. And I think that's where our stories first intertwined. Um, I believe now we're at the point where you're talking uh, about Evoke, which uh, soon came to be known as Raindance. And so we worked there and that was a, and that's where we met. And that's where I first got, uh, you know, my taste of, of Cambria and, and, and was just, you know, immediately impressed and, 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 and knew that you were, I, I didn't even really know what marketing was at that time. I was just kind of like, oh, what is it? Who are these people? They're the, they're the smart people in the company. They're doing all this cool stuff. And, we worked there for a while. And like you said, again, like always on this, like leading edge, it sounds like you, you, you've been like always on the the tip of the spear, always kind of first in. And that, that's super exciting. And I remember working there and now even looking back at where like all the people we worked with are today. It's just like this crazy, you know, network uh, alumni of people that have gone on to start companies and do all these amazing things. So it was just this amazing time that that I know for myself I didn't really appreciate at the time you know I was I was also scrappy as you say and trying to do different things and and, and trying to push in my career and so working at that company having that opportunity that's where we met but then that comes to an end for all of us too uh you know at a time there was an acquisition Intercall uh, owned by Westcorp bought that company and you know the kind of I, I used to tell my friends like when I first uh, started working at Raindance that if Homer Simpson uh, got a job at a startup, that's what it would look like. Uh, because, you know, he had Paul <laughs> Barbarian on his like razor scooter rushing around and there was all this food and everyone was just young and fun and, and crazy. And, but it was interesting. It wasn't total excess and waste or anything like that. It was just this like, it had a definite character to it and, and a definite profile. Uh, and then we were purchased by West and uh, in Intercall and, and that changed a little bit. They, they had a different, different model, a different culture. Uh, and so after that, and after working for, for West for a while, where'd you go after that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that gave me, I think you summed that up perfectly. And I, and I think going and starting at, at startups with that, that vibe, that culture, and then getting the experience to then work for, for the big guys, um, for West corporation with, you know, thousands and thousands of employees all over the world, getting that taste of what global marketing looked like, um, how having teammates and, and teams now in other, other continents um, understanding really how those messages that we were coming up with were resonating with different types of customers. That all was really exciting and it helped me really grow and formalize my career on that stand front. Also working for um, a really seasoned chief marketing officer that had come from Motorola, Kathleen Fanato, and uh, really learning more business acumen, um, understanding more about becoming a data-driven marketer. That was a really good side to round out more of the branding and communication side that I had had acquired. But I also knew and was showing up not as, as someone that was, was passionate about building that brand because the brand that we had evolved into wasn't necessarily something that, that I was passionate about, nor was I becoming too great at. And it was really hard for me to take that look and say, oh, I've been in this you know, tech communication field and startup field for so many years now, but I don't think it's doing it for me anymore. But I knew that I still really loved marketing and I was passionate about marketing, but my interests as, as a person and a professional had really grown. And I was looking to how could I perhaps marry what I was becoming more, you know, I was, I was a mother at this time. I had been married and divorced and ready to really take the, that, you know, maturity and, and try to be bold and brave and break out of what I had always known um, and do something different. And that was when I really was looking into how can I get into health, wellness, more lifestyle, both business to business and business to consumer marketing. Because to me, I had much more personal passion in that field. But I was also, I didn't have, that's not where my connections were. That wasn't where my network was. And so that was, that was a bit of a brave, bold and scary time, but I decided to pursue it. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned that you had lost your passion for the brand. I mean, you're showing up to work, but you weren't necessarily feeling the brand and that happens to all of us, but why is that important? Why is that, why does that matter? You know, I think it, it it's different for everyone. And I think it depends on the path that you're on and, and what your, your career or your job is, is how you position that into how that reflects on your identity, how you show up in the world. And, and for some people, showing up and getting a paycheck and getting back to all of the other demands that life is is putting on you sometimes that works and that's that's good enough and and sometimes it's good enough always for people it just isn't how i'm wired and hitting the the cruise button is something that we all can do for a period of time but when i wake up in the morning i want to be fired up i want to be excited to do better for our customers for my teammates i want to know what's next um, i want to feel you know, that Friday night light energy. And when I don't have it for me personally, I can't be a great leader. I can't be good for our customers and deliver on what I was hired to do. And then that makes me not feel proud of myself. And then that means I'm not going to do my best work. And I think for any of us that have gone through those cycles in life outside of work or within, that's a time where, you know, if you, if you don't change, the same thing's going to keep happening over and over again. And when you can't break out of that, it's time to do something different. Oh, for sure. And, you know, if there's one thing I know about you, I, or at least I think I know about you, is that you're passionate about food. You're passionate about cooking and, and creating a experience around the dinner table and using food as a way to bring family together and to really frame the moments that matter to you. And so what I saw in your career was that you took this passion and you went out and you, as you just outlined, you went and you found a role that really was was built all around food with a company called Door to Door Organics. And like, how did that work out? And I guess what I'm asking is, I think that a lot of people think, oh, if I only had a job built around my passion, it would be so awesome. It would be the best. Like if I, if I just, this thing that I love, if I could just find a role uh, around that thing, whether, you know, I don't know, what am I into these days? You know, I'm into uh, wake surfing, right? So like if I, if I found a job around wake surfing, I'd just be so much happier. Like, like what's your take on it now that you went and did it and, and had that experience? 
I would say uh, it was it was everything and more um, that I was looking for in terms of I didn't realize how much I needed to. How, for me, the comfort was um, was not bringing out the best in what I had, and so making a shift in an industry, whether it was what to what I was passionate about or just a big shift, I think the same result would have happened. That it just sort of awakens all the senses. And those things that you had done really well or that made a difference in, in one industry can be even more powerful in another. So from a business perspective, it was really rewarding to really take you know, the years of planning and rebrands and communication strategies and then applying that to a consumer industry or another emerging industry, but that was all around really natural and organic food that was married with technology. And, and I could not have ever envisioned that that path would have happened. But again, you know, working your networks, talking to people, really following and having those coffee meetings, things present themselves. And I had the opportunity to be introduced to Chad Arnold, um, who was the, the chief executive officer at Door-to-Door Organics at that time. And start talking about those the strategies that we were using at a, a conferencing company, a collaboration company, and how we were really enable enabled ourselves to sell into one decision maker and then engage the masses. And how could that then apply to online grocery? And how can we start to talk about building a brand that would really resonate with with smart, um, well educated, busy women trying to feed their families? How in the world could those those strategies and messages even be in the same ballpark. And, and what we found is that we are, are more alike than different. And so, so to me, that was, that was something that was incredibly inspiring. And then being able to actually show up at, at a warehouse, especially in the early days of training and being there for you know, a 5 a.m. delivery of, of fresh produce from Southern California, berries and artichokes and garlic and I couldn't think of anything um, more inspiring to wake up to, to, to essentially get the juices flowing. So it was, it was not anything I could have envisioned, um, but something that I just really put myself out there and I was willing, like in the early days, to do whatever it took just to get my toe into an industry that I felt I didn't know that much about, only to learn that the years of, of experience and strategies in certain areas would actually have more power and impact into an industry like online grocery um, that thanks to the pandemic is now, of course, you know, not, not ahead of the curve, um, but definitely, you know, the, the uh, mainstream adopters are already in there. Yeah. And so even with that, when you were like, you were on the tip of the spear again, you were like a little ahead of your time. Like uh, people were having a hard time adopting and adapting to that model. And it be, it was just a tough model at the time, given the market conditions. And, and one can only think that, you know, uh, where you, you know, was, was, was door to door around right now, it would be crushing it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you said it perfectly. And I, I think you are right. It's that with Link VTC, with VStream turned, you know, Rain Dance or Evoke, then Rain Dance, all of that is just very early adopter marketing and, and setting it up for what's next. And, and that same thing was, was true with, with door-to-door, but formalizing a strategy that really aligned to who, who is the early adopter? Why is she that way? And how can we find more of her became something that, you know, we were able to, to grow from when I joined of, you know, 8 million upwards of, you know, over 80 million in, in just about a few years. Um, and so seeing that kind of growth and traction, while it might not be the end game of, you know, maybe getting acquired by Amazon or going public for an online grocery in, back in those days, that success that we celebrated and built together as, as a team from our delivery drivers to our pickers, packers, um, to the logistics crew and the marketing team was, there are a lot of celebrations um, with, of course, lots of, of heartache along the way. But um, that passion and teamwork um, and brand that we created for our customers, as well as the employees was second to none. Yeah. And, it, and it's such an exciting time. And, and, and a big part of your career was spent in this very, like what I would, what I would term Colorado centric companies, like very Colorado cool tech, like door to door organics. I mean, just like very kind of wearing that Colorado badge, but now you're at a company that's global and I believe it's ba- based in Germany. Is that right? 
Correct. Uh, Munich, Germany. Munich, Germany. And so now uh, completely shifting the... The, the 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 pattern that you have a new challenge for you you're you're working for this global company i mean like what's hard or what's what, what don't we know about being a global cmo for a company like that so i would say so egym while we have been around for for 10 years um and they're very well known in in germany for sure or you know uh in the in the dock region really i think what's what's so interesting and again you know with i think all of the topics that we're experiencing as as a world right now is again we're in a lot of areas we're we're more alike than different but yet those nuances are really important to understand and what works in one place does not necessarily replicate in others and so understanding and building a brand that again was was big enough like we make the gym work for everyone and really identifying and nailing down what we all care about in life, which is becoming healthy and becoming fit for life. That's something that whether you're in the UK or you're in Boulder, Colorado or Munich, Germany, we can all rally around that concept. And to me, that's the thing that makes all of the hard parts of the time changes, the various languages, um, the differences and nuances in the marketplace, if we can all rally on what can we align on and what can we agree on, um, that then makes it a lot less overwhelming. It makes it a lot more clear to our market. And really, it gets us out of our own way at a lot of times. And I think that's that's been half the battle is, is just really aligning on what do we stand for as a company? Who are we as individual EGMEs, as we refer to ourselves? And how together can we really bring the world together around finding those health seekers and making the gym work for them so they can be fit for the life that they choose to lead and boost their immunity system and, and really become healthy and stronger as, as a world. And to me, that is what gets me out of bed every day and is the most inspiring. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be part of a movement that could not be more timely. Yeah. And so... You know, it's incredibly hard time for marketers during this pandemic in general. But I have to imagine that for a company that's working with physical gyms and gym, you know, technology equipment that goes into those locations, it has to be really difficult. I mean, what's going on? I mean, I have some clients that are gym based, like in the climbing, climbing sector and stuff like that. And it's been tough, right? I mean, it's complete shutdown. It's, it's, it's like a really tough situation. How are you navigating that? And what are you looking forward to in the future here? So it is an incredibly difficult situation right now for, for gyms across the world. Um, and I think as for eGym, you know, we also were set to launch a brand new brand, roll out our brand at some of our biggest trade shows that were set to take place in um, March and April. So right at the beginning of the pandemic at uh, our, the, you know, the largest fitness event in the world, FIBO. And then here in the United States, URSA, and then only for both of those shows to be canceled um, and then the world goes on lockdown. So how do you launch a brand during a pandemic, let alone then making sure that regardless of what eGym and our brand was doing, that we were also then putting our customers at the forefront. And that, you know, was really, it was an interesting question for all of us. You know, once you get through the panic of, okay, this is not happening. The world as we know it is shifting and changing so what do we need to do to make sure that we're, we're doing right by our companies, our shareholders, our employees, but also putting our customers first, um, putting them at center stage, which is a, a core habit of ours at, at eGym. And that allowed, again, similar to where, where can we align versus what are all the scary things, helped us really get grounded as a company. And, and together, we worked really hard to understand what are the biggest challenges that our customers are facing right now. And what as what as they would be looking at us as maybe their their hardware provider, we're not selling steel. So what can we do to really rally around them? And, and what we narrowed in on is the things that those gym owners needed most at this time was to stay close to their members, um, to make sure that they their members felt that they were still connected to that community that they had, even though they weren't able to be in the four walls of the gym. Um, they were still connected. That gym owner still cared about them. And they were able to still maintain their health through the scary times. So together, we worked on software packages um, through our digital solutions that allowed those gym owners to then communicate 
through a mobile device to their members to build that kind of community, to push out virtual workouts, um, to really for them to share competitions, even though they weren't in that gym, followed by how can they then help to reopen their gym safely, to understand the rules and restrictions, to be able to manage their members signing up for time slots so there weren't too many members in the gym at any one time, um, to be able to manage through our timed smart strength circuit to be able to clean the equipment, to move on to the next without being um, less than six feet from from someone else. Um, So all of those tools and applications and even a program where once before you might be building for strength or weight loss, how about boosting your immunity? What can sports and science come together to actually help you have measurable outcomes on how you actually can improve your immunity as you're going back to the gym, being the health seeker that you are. So as a company, we really rallied around what can we do to help our customer through this time? So when they're ready to reopen, they're better and stronger than ever before. And then prepared for, you know, if and when the virus comes back and we have to shut down again. So so from that time, it became all about the customer, again, recommitting to the, the essence that we all know it's what they say they are, not we say we are, really has has served us and led us through this time of uncertainty. Um, and we're really excited to see as, you know, all of German gyms are reopened. The UK has set a time. Spain has set a time and is reopening. And, and those countries and the way they've been handling it um, are seeing their curve go significantly down. So, and now we can have those conversations with gym owners about what's next. How can we not just keep doing what we did before, but now learning from all of these measurable outcomes we were able to see through this time and actually double down and invest on that to be better and smarter in the future. Oh, I love that. And and I love like this, this idea of like when in doubt, just return to the customer and, and how can we serve them and, and how can we benefit them? It's, it's so powerful. Um, I know, I know we're coming to the end of our time. I just have a couple more questions for you. You know, you mentioned the rebrand. There's probably nothing I love more than a good new brand or rebrand and then launching the brand. It's so exciting, right? It's kind of like new love. It's like, like you get to go out there and like, it's just like really, really exciting. I mean, what do you love about that process? I mean, what excites you? And and I could hear it in your voice, you know, it, it, it modulated and, and, and changed it for the better when you started talking about that rebrand. Like, why do you love that? Like, what, how, why is that important to you? There's something really special about a rebrand because you take the best of what's been created over, you know, almost a decade and give it a fresh, shiny polish, a new face, essentially. And I love it because, and I found this in my career, that I'm not necessarily the person that's going to be in front of the camera all of the time, but there's nothing I love more than taking all of the, all of the amazing insights and turning that into something fresh and letting those people that have put their blood, sweat and tears into something and letting them really walk away and be incredibly proud. And I think sometimes these young companies, especially everyone's so heads down that you don't really see all of the amazing work and results that have been happening along the way because they haven't been packaged in a way that really makes sense to either the employees or to the industry. And so that's the thing that has been the most rewarding when I first flew to Munich and and stood in the social area with, you know, hundreds of EGMEs asking them about the names of all of the different products and services and features. And they came to me in multiple languages and multiple terms saying the same thing. And the confusion that was across the board for the employees um, was mirrored in our industries and customers. And so to be able to pull all of that together with with languages that are different, both in nationality and regions, but also in terms of just products and features and pull them into one new EGME language that was going to redefine the industry and the company as to who EGM is, what we stand for, what we offer, and how we're going to change the world for the better is something that I can't imagine any marketer or any person wouldn't want to be involved with, um, let alone help lead. So to me, that has been one of the the biggest and most exciting and and the proudest moments is to give all of the EGMEs and our customers something that they can look at and point to and be really proud of in addition to all of the measurable return on investment that we're able to deliver through all of our our, um, offerings. And and Cambria, as we come to a close here, You've accomplished so much. You've had such a quite career, quite a career. Thank you for sharing that with us. If your 
20-year-old self, that, that college-age Cambria, you know, ran into you today, what do you think she'd say? Hmm. I think she would say, you showed up, you were brave, never settle, push harder, but be proud and happy with, with where you are and make sure you, you take pause as you uh, climb each of those summits. And, and sometimes uh, you also pushing hard. Sometimes it's okay just to float for a little bit um, so you can be stronger and ready for what's ahead. And that is Cambria Jacobs, Global Chief Marketing Officer of eGym. I love how she referred to herself as scrappy. And I almost called this episode, She's Scrappy but decided to go a bit more traditional in the end. I'm always intrigued to see where Cambria's career leads. eGym is lucky to have her, and I have no doubt that eGym will go on to greater things with her leading the marketing team. Thank you again to Cambria and the crew at eGym. Keep making the gym easy for health seekers like me. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny.